All right, welcome to another edition of the Hardwood Huddle. My name is Randy Zellier from BackSportsPage.com. And with me, as always, Lord Vader. He is the guy. He was the one who was supposed to play Kylo Ren in the trilogy. He was not available due to contractual of uh, disputes. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, Adam Driver was pretty good. <laughs> he is the king himself. He is Bill Ingram. Bill, what is up, my friend? It's good to see you. Uh, it feels like we're playing a little bit of catch-up right now, but we're here. By definition, we are playing catch-up. Part of the problem was uh, that my router died in the middle of this interview that you're about to see, and uh, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew it was out. And so you'll see some technical difficulties on my end that have now obviously been resolved. So, mm -hmm. well, but the funny thing with this interview with John Michael was before we went on air and a little bit during the interview itself, I couldn't believe how many major league references we had in this move in this uh, interview from the movie Major League. Uh, we just had, to, I don't know if Bill, if you heard it during this. The interview where we said when when the Cavaliers officially won the championship, I asked him if he did the oh my god, the Cavaliers did it and did the whole thing where he did the arms that Bob Euchre did in the second one. Right. So, um, but with all with all joking aside, uh, yes, today's show is about the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, just to set the background and the the backstory a little bit. LeBron James came back to Cleveland in 2014 for the 2014-2015 season. The team made the NBA Finals, but against the first round against the Boston Celtics, Kevin Love went down with injury, and in Game One of the NBA Finals, Kyrie Irving went down. So it was Lebr it was the Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavalier. Uh, so that's pretty much how it ended up. Um, and Bill, going through the journey of this season, of course, David Black getting let go and uh, Ty Lue getting promoted. It was a very interesting story, the Cleveland Cavaliers from 2015, 2016. Well, first of all, when you see the highlights of people out in the parking lot sweeping up ash and then trying to glue back together those LeBron James jerseys that they had burned <laughs> this season. Um, well, I think, you know, really the thing that this, this uh, particular team highlighted for me um, and the run that they had is that Winning a championship, and Shane Battier talked about how hard it is to win a game. Just winning one game in the NBA, when he was on our show, he talked about that's so difficult, people don't appreciate it. Winning a championship, you have to have the right players on the roster, of course, but it's not just that. You have to have the right chemistry, and at the end of the day, and this will absolutely determine this year's NBA Finals, you got to have health. I mean – if the Lakers are healthy when the ball goes up on the playoffs and the, and LeBron and AD, who cares about the rest really? But if LeBron and AD are healthy throughout the playoffs, the Lakers are going to win the championship. They just are. But if one of those guys goes down, now it becomes, well, who's healthy? Are the Utah Jazz? Is their backcourt healthy? Is uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, are they willing to play 16 games in the postseason? Uh, you know, there's so many factors that come to play. But the one thing, you can control effort through coaching. You can control um, a lot of different things, game planning. You can control so many things about the game. The thing you can't control is injuries. They're going to happen. And when they happen is what determines the outcome of your season. Even if you're like the most amazing team in the Eastern Conference and you come in, you get hurt, bam, you're done. And that's what happened to the, to the Cavaliers. Even though, hey, <laughs> the Warriors were just – they could have won anyway, and they did. 
we we saw the Warriors, uh, but that's the one thing that just kills you. And by the way, we would like to apologize to Kyle Kuzma and some of the other members of the Lakers. You do matter. They matter. <laughs> but, I mean, you have a choice. <laughs> injured or Anthony Davis is getting injured. Sorry, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just saying I don't want their feelings to be hurt if they're watching the show. Kyle, you do matter. We do right. like you. Um, but, um, you know, and one of the things that we talked about with John was uh, the signing of the offseason that year of Richard Jefferson on what he meant to the team both on and off the court. Uh, and like you said, the aftermath of this was, you know, Kevin Durant, the following season signs with the Golden State Warriors, you know, the criticism that he still takes to this day of saying, hey, you left your team to join somebody else's team to win a championship. You know, I. what's the best way of saying this without being, like, offensive to those Kevin Durant haters and LeBron lovers? Look, LeBron left Cleveland to sort of get an education on how to win in Miami. That's like reality. We can say we want about LeBron James, but that's what, what what it was. He went to Miami to learn how to win. So Kevin Durant went to Golden State, I think, to learn how to win. You know, when you have two young players, really three, because Harden was there, and you know, if you have two guys that neither one know how to win, look at the Celtics right now. The Celtics have incredible talent, but not one of those guys knows how to win. That's right, Kevin. So. I, the thing I think is ironic, and I'm not—I'm a Durant guy. I knew Kevin before he played in the NBA. Used to hang out with him during the draft. We sat in the hotel, talked to him about who they needed to draft. He'd text Sam Presti and say, "Hey, you need to draft this guy." And then sometimes they would, and we'd be like, nah, "We we built this Thunder team, you know." But uh, so I, I'm a big fan of KD, uh, even though he's gotten a little soft on the whole social media. He worries too much about that, but he's a good kid. Just you want the any player in the league can take the last shot in a game where you have to have a three pointer to win the game. You want Steph or KD? That's just not LeBron. That's not the guy. But KD, oh my God, he's gonna he's just gonna make the shot. Yeah, and you go to Brooklyn because you leave Golden State because you want to. I this was what we heard from him. You want to win your championship on your own team. But then you get Kyrie Irving, you get LaMarcus Aldridge, you like you go down this list of I thought you were going there to then you get James Harden, you get Blake Griffin. You, what was that about leaving Golden State to go win on your own team? Oh, mm. That doesn't make any sense to me. You should have stayed in Golden State. You have a couple more rings already. Or go back to OKC. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well with 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 that with that said though i am not going i i was showing a different perspective on the uh kevin durant going to golden state situation people say you have to look at it like the way the way like lebron did when going to miami to learn how to win you know steph and clay are good leaders and, and as much as we all hate him so is draymond and you know, draymond is one of those guys who we mistake his um his passion for cockiness. And I think that's a, a real big testament. Oh, and I, and I don't like Draymond whatsoever, but I'm giving him a compliment. So um, with all that being said, though, you know, we sat down with, but if I'm putting together a championship team, I like him. 
yeah, yeah. If he's on my team, I am cheering. I have a big We Love Draymond sign. I'm buying his jersey. I, I give him a high five. I, I ask for his autograph. If, if he's playing my team, he's getting the old F you and get off of my court type of mentality. So, um, so let's, you know, like Bill said before, he had some technical problems. During this interview, I did the best I can to uh, to sort of pick up where uh, where he was leaving off, and John was was great, yeah. uh, and we always enjoy having him. The original plan was to have him and Bob Fitzgerald on from the Warriors to make this a little group discussion and maybe get you know get some virtual punches going so we don't do some really uh, you know we all we're all social distancing still. But with that being said, I hope everyone gets to enjoy this part of the Hardwood Huddle. Welcome to another edition of the Hardwood Huddle. My name is Randy Zellia, BackSportsPage.com. With me, as always, he is the Sith Lord. He is the Jedi Knight. He is every Star Wars reference you can possibly think of. I think I've nailed every single one in all the shows we've done over the time. His name is Bill Ingram. And joining us today, today we dive deep into the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers with the voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Mr. John Michael. John, thanks for giving us some time today, buddy. I appreciate it. You got it, Randy and Bill. Always fun to visit. So I guess the story has to start where the last story ends with the 2015 Cavaliers, the, the NBA Finals uh, trip for the first time since, I guess, for the Cavaliers for since 2007, if that's if that's correct. The last time the Cavaliers were in the NBA Finals and LeBron, you know, came back after a, a four year stint with the Miami Heat led the team to the finals, but then I guess injuries came through that playoff run where Kevin Love got hurt against the Boston Celtics and Kyrie Irving got injured against the Golden State Warriors in game one of the finals. And the, the Cavs end up losing that series four to two. What was the dynamic of this team going back, starting in the 2015-2016 season, coming off an NBA finals run where a lot of people were saying, if our number two or number three options were available, we could have been there. Well, that was it. I mean, and, and you want to talk about hope going into the season. It was the move to begin with when LeBron said, Hey, he penned the essay saying I'm coming back to Cleveland. I mean, it transcended basketball for Northeast Ohio. I mean, it gave hope to a region that hadn't won a title since the Lyndon Johnson administration. So, I mean, people were, people were ready for this to take place and LeBron came back and then they made the trade for Kevin Love. They sent two first round picks to Minnesota, bring in love. You couple him with LeBron and Kyrie and you think you have something and off the bat, it didn't go all that smoothly. I mean, the Cavs 39 games in were under 500. Uh, they made a big deal uh, nearing the trade deadline that brought in some reinforcements that made it a team that resembled the one that eventually won the championship next season, but it didn't go smoothly at first. Eventually, they worked out the kinks. Then they get into the playoffs. Kevin Love gets lost in an early round uh, to Boston. Kyrie Irving's gone. Or excuse, me, yeah, Kyrie Irving's gone uh, in the first game of the finals. And then you know it was LeBron doing a lot of shouldering a lot of the work uh, the rest of the way through those finals. But it was a special year. It it certainly gave this team the template for what could be the next season, and it was. Uh, and, and I think it was necessary. For what took place in 2016 eventually 
bringing that title to Cleveland. What was the what was the key to the turnaround? Of course, the knee-jerk reaction is always fire the coach, which they did. Um, and the challenge of going from coaching in Europe to coaching in the NBA, it's not an automatic. It's a whole – the dynamic of the league is totally different. Also, I think fans – and I, I say this all the time. On 2K, you can put LeBron with KD and Steph and go 82-0 and and win the championship. But in real life, as we saw when LeBron went to Miami – Real basketball with real people is not as simple as looking good on paper. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. And and the move that the Cavs made in that second season after LeBron's return was David Blatt had been the head coach, took them to the finals in that first season. They went away from David Blatt, inserted Teron Liu, and the communication lines did open up with this team. I think the communication was better on the practice floor. I think accountability picked up throughout that lineup because that's the kind of person Teron Liu is. He's not afraid to confront players. And not saying that that's not what David Blatt did before. It was just a different style that seemed to fit this family a little bit better moving forward. And it played out, you know, into the playoffs as well. So, and, you know, you talk about a team being centered around LeBron. Not everybody in the NBA can play with LeBron James. And I mean that on a number of different levels. The first being that if you're not competing, if you're not giving it all each and every game, LeBron doesn't have time for you on his team. You know, and when you see the best player on the planet being the first one in practice and being the last one to leave, and we hear that it becomes so, so cliche, but really that's where accountability starts. And was. Yeah, well, that's right. And and LeBron expected everybody. And when LeBron knows every single person's play, and then you run the wrong way, and LeBron knows what you're supposed to be doing, and he doesn't even play your position, you better know what you're doing out there on the floor. So for a number of different reasons, and a, Le- a team with LeBron on it is designed to operate around LeBron, right? And if you are a player who cannot handle that, that doesn't suit your style, it's not going to work. So it takes a while to figure out who are the best complementary pieces to play with LeBron James. And I think it took a full season to do that. In then came the Richard Jeffersons. In came the Channing Fries. Tristan Thompson was a perfect fit from the very beginning. J.R. Smith was acquired during that run as well. And these were pieces that fit. And by that second season, with Teron Liu at the helm in the second half of the year, boy, it started to blossom. And people started to think, all right, now this is what it should look like. If this team stays healthy, it can certainly do some damage, make another run to the finals, and we'll see what happens. Can you talk about what it was like, not only for this team of being at home, but also on the road traveling, knowing that a team with LeBron James sort of has the the target on their back. Every team is getting up to play a LeBron-oriented team. Obviously, coming back in 2015, working through the adjustments, the 14-15 season, and now going into the 2015-16 season with a team that's sort of a work in progress like they were, what was it like for being on the being on the road with a team like that, knowing that there was a target on the back all the time? It was night and day, and it was it, it was exhilarating to be honest with you. It was it was more fun than you can imagine. We always joked that the season before a smoke bomb could have gone off in the practice facility, and nobody would have known the difference. And, <laughs> comes, and, and honest to goodness, guys, we'd be sitting we'd be sitting at practice, all right, and something would happen. Somebody would tweak something. And we would leave practice and the televisions as we left the facility on the ESPN ticker, so-and-so tweaks this, 
in practice, which just happened 10 minutes ago. Honest to goodness. And so it was the scrutiny level is amped to, you know, is amped to a status that you, you could only imagine. And when we're on the road, you know, hundreds of folks at hotels packed deep, you know, just to get a glimpse at these guys walking for two seconds out of the hotel into the bus and everything else. And that's what it was like to travel with this team for four seasons. And yes, you get every team's best when you're on the road. You get every team's best every night, but particularly when you're on the road, when those crowds are all geared up and ready to, you know, to root against your team. So in that sense, the regular season never really meant as much to this Cavs team. They weren't all that concerned about the seeding. And it turns out rightfully so, as all four of those seasons, they did advance through the Eastern Conference playoffs and into the finals. It, it sort of took a backseat. I remember games where one time the Cavaliers really took it to the Atlanta Hawks, for example, in the first two seasons, swept the Hawks out of the playoffs. One of those years, the Hawks had 60 wins. The Cavs in March lost a game in Atlanta by about 30 points. And I remember on the plane ride back, Teron Lue and LeBron James look at each other, nod to each other and say, we got them now. You know, and you think, how in the world did that happen? We just lost by 30 points. But something up. They picked up the way that Atlanta was doing certain things and said, come playoff time, we're going to get these guys. And sure enough, twice in a row, swept them right out of the playoffs. So that's the kind of, you know, again, when you talk about things being heightened, that's what we're talking about on a regular basis with those four teams. What do you think with Kyrie Irving coming back from injury? He wasn't ready to go for the beginning of the season. He came in about midway, about midway through. And man, you know, you want to talk about a guy at that time frame just didn't get the love that he deserved at that point in time. Kyrie ended up being so valuable during the year. What was it like for him? I remember just just to go a little off topic, the, the season before, I think it was the second or third game that he played with LeBron. He played Chicago, and he was mic'd up. And he said during the timeout, he goes, this is what it must be like to be in the playoffs because he felt an intensity there. From where you remember seeing Kyrie start to where he was at that point, how much of a player did, did he change? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I always thought the relationship was a good one. You know, the entire time he was there with LeBron, you know, it wasn't something that clearly you could see on the practice floor, you know, or that there were problems off the court. I, at no time did that ever manifest itself. I never saw that. But, it, you know, when you think about it, I, I, you know, I can't get into Kyrie's head and what he was thinking at the time. But when you play on a team with LeBron, that's just part of the deal. Right. When I talk about guys who can't play with LeBron, I'm not saying Kyrie could or couldn't. He certainly showed that he could uh, in those seasons that the two were together. But certain guys can't handle that particularly well. And that's what happens. He gets all the attention. Uh, you know, all the like I said, the whole game plan for the Cavs and for the other team in terms of the scouting report is mostly around LeBron. So that's where the attention is going to fall. Uh, I always thought, like I said, Randy, I always saw that relationship as a good one. You know, we, we we know what happened. We know Kyrie departed. We know Kyrie wanted certain other things from the rest of his basketball career. And, you know, certainly wish him well in doing that. But uh, I, when they were together, I did think it was a good mix. I thought it worked. And, again, I think the proof is is in the results. I, I yeah, and I also thought one of the key pieces that was uh, was much much more improved that for the Cavs for the 2016 was Richard Jefferson. Can you talk about the impact that Richard had made because he was such a key component to the uh, 
to the to the team and just his experience of being in the finals with the Nets when he first came into the league. How was that able to uh, sort of complement LeBron and also help some of the other players? Huge, just huge. I, I've said for years that the Cavs are not champions in 2016 if Richard Jefferson is not on this team. I say the same thing about Tristan Thompson. You take away Tristan Thompson or you take away Richard Jefferson, no chance that this team wins in 2016. Jefferson was a stabilizing force. He'd been there before. And I think, again, the more veterans you have in that locker room, the better off the situation is, uh, particularly ones who have been there before, like Jefferson. But what what a key role he provided off that Cavalier bench. Teron Lou in the playoffs really was shortened that bench at times. He was only using two guys, two or three, uh, in terms of those reserves. And Jefferson uh, was usually the one that was used the most. So, yeah, it was uh, – it was something that was necessary. It was a critical pickup. And like I said, the Cavs aren't chance without Richard Jefferson. Can you also talk about during the previous finals, obviously due to injuries, uh, Timothy Mozgov and, uh, you know, Matthew Delvadova were key pieces. I remember Delhi was like so exhausted because I think he had never played that hard and, and uh, that, that long in his, in his career. And he all of a sudden was hospitalized during the finals and he, it felt like during the second way of the season, the second or second half of the season, and even during the playoff run, uh, those guys weren't even really used that much. Well, right, and Delavadova, I mean, he became an instant folk hero in Cleveland, you know, and that his the way he introduced himself mostly to Cavs fans in that crunch time was Kyrie Irving was injured in that 2015 finals at the who guarded Curry the rest of the way. The Cavs won in Golden State in game two, won in Cleveland in game three. And it was after that game three finals game in 2015 that, in fact, they had to take Delavadova to the Cleveland Clinic because he literally left everything out there on the floor. He was dehydrated, and they had to take care of him after that game. But he was a critical part of the run. And then Moscow's an interesting question because it was – you know, that series started as Mozgov was in there, Bogut was in there in terms of some of the big men, but that series eventually evolved completely away from big men. I mean, you, you rarely saw Bogut. You rarely saw Mozgov. It was more of a perimeter-oriented series. So, yeah, while Mozgov was a big piece, wasn't used as much in the finals runs, uh, certainly not. You know, I honestly felt in the 2016 finals that when Bogut went down, it changed the, the, the complexity of the series because he was their rim protector for the Warriors. And I felt like once he left, I felt like the the, uh, the Cavs were able to get to the basket a little easier. It took away the presence, and they just didn't have the inside presence to uh, guard the rim as much as they, and they would probably could have been able to. Well, it was interesting. It's a good question, Randy. But, you know, the, the way they were using Bogut, a lot of times Steve would start him at the start of the half and the start of the second half, and he'd only play maybe 10 or 12 minutes, but they like to get started that way, and it got him into the rotation and got their pieces set in terms of where they wanted him to be. I think it did hurt them in terms of not having that luxury anymore after he went out. But again, I thought the dynamic of the series was one that you know, favored playing certain players, didn't favor other players. And that's what we we simply just didn't see a lot of big men. You know, once Bogut was gone, once Mozgov was gone, it was basically, you know, I don't want to say a perimeter-oriented series, although I, you know, I, I used that phrase before. It just wasn't one where the big men were being utilized. And I think why we saw them less frequently throughout. Yeah, I think the, the 2015 finals, it was less less utilized. It was less, it was more utilized the first year than it was the second year. 
And uh, but obviously, I think things things worked out pretty pretty well in in that standpoint. Sorry, y'all. I'm obviously having connection issues, but one thing I think when I look at this, uh... I guess I think Bill froze again. Um, you know, John, one thing too that I I, I felt. Which was because I was very heavy. I, I grew up a New Jersey Net fan, so I wasn't used to really watching playoff basketball anyway. So <laughs> that's just the way it was at that at that time. Uh, one of the things that I really followed with this Cleveland Cavalier team is, you know, LeBron made a very very big point when he was treating his time in Miami like it was college, and he was able to go away and come back. Can you talk about the demeanor? of LeBron James coming back to the Cavaliers, what it was like, and for him to endure the disappointment of not winning a championship that first year back in Cleveland, and how he was able to sort of change his demeanor for that 2016 season. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. He came back for a purpose. I mean, there was no doubt in anybody's mind that his lone goal was to win a championship for his hometown. You know, and it didn't happen that first year, and he's such a competitor. Obviously, it's not going to sit well, but I think LeBron is a realist as well in terms of the fact that after the Cavs sustained injuries to their second and third best players, their teams were, were, you know, were long. You know, it wasn't likely going to happen. I think he was rejuvenated that next season with the health, with the new additions to this team. And I, like I said, I, I thought, you know, when he got there here, he was on a mission he said, I, you know, I got my championship, but now I want to do it, you know, for my city and for my hometown. And that's precisely what he ended up doing in 2016. Go for what it. I was trying to say before, <laughs> all of a sudden our, our house internet just got out. And obviously I can't troubleshoot that right now. So uh, you have different people who step up. And I thought the thing about this Cavaliers team, you know, you're going to get what you're going to get from LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love, but you had so many pieces uh, who could step up in a given situation and win a series for you or win a game for you because it's never just about the, the stars on a team. It's always about the supporting cast. Well, you're right. And to me, I start with Tristan Thompson. He was the perfect fit for that ball club because what they did, they told Tristan is, look, be aggressive on the glass, go get the ball and give it to somebody else. And that's what Tristan did, you know, on the offensive <laughs> end. And defensively, they basically told him, look, you know, do what you do. But a big part of why the Cavs were able to have success against the Warriors in 2016 was because Tristan's, because of Tristan's versatility and switchability on the defensive end. If you look back at those games in the finals, there were stretches where he would get switched on to Steph Curry and have to defend him six, seven, eight seconds in a possession. And most starting power forwards are not capable of doing that anywhere on the floor, let alone on the perimeter. But because he was able to do that, Teron Lue was able to play certain defenses, you know, to free up the Cavs in other areas. And that was critical. I mean, Tristan's effect on that series, you cannot look at a box score and determine just how important he was. Thompson was critical to the Cavs' success. And I mentioned earlier, J.R. Smith, you know, the game seven – in 2016, he comes out in the second half. Cavs were trailing by six or eight points. He comes out in the second half and buried a couple of threes and got the Cavs back even in that ball game. And, you know, it was just back and forth for there, from there the rest of the way. And Smith's impact in the earlier rounds is key. 
it, you know, it's not rocket science. The guy can hit three-point shots. When you have LeBron James and he's driving, you either have to commit to stopping LeBron in the lane or you have to spray out yep. the shooters. Most coaches decide to commit to LeBron. He hits the shooter, you hit the three, and it's curtains. And that is what J.R. Smith did time and time again when the lights were the brightest. So he, too, was a critical component of what the Cavs did during that 2016 run. Do you feel that he is not appreciated as he should be for the contributions he made to this championship team? Who, J.R. Smith? Yes. I I think that the folks here in Northeast Ohio appreciate J.R. just <laughs> You know, I, I believe that. And, and, and you know, you want to talk about it. players that you see around the league when you don't cover them personally, that you think about a certain way, like, ah, you know, I'm not not sure I'd be that big of a fan of this guy, you know, and mm-hmm. gets to your team and you see a completely different side of him. And, and it, it, it's shocking. And J.R. Smith is one of those people. J.R. Smith was one of the most liked individuals in that locker room, not just because he was, you know, he'd do what he did on the floor, but because he was, he was a good guy. You know, he made everybody laugh. He was fun to be around. He was a terrific team. Ask anybody who played with J.R. Smith. They'll tell you what a great teammate J.R. Smith was. Kendrick Perkins is one of those guys too, by the way. Yeah. And for different teams, he has that scowl. He's always, you know, bumping into people and everything else. You think, ah, my goodness, Kendrick Perkins comes to the Cavs. I'm like, this is one of the nicest people I've ever been around in my entire life, you know? So there are those people in the NBA that fit into that category. To me, J.R. Smith is still uh, beloved here in Cleveland. He had his shirt off for a full week and a half after the won the championship. Nobody's ever going to forget that. That's etched upon everybody's mind. So, you know, talk folk hero status. Delvadova's in there, but, but J.R. Smith's right there as well. Well, there's a reason why he's still in the NBA. You know, the, the guys that are not like the guys who aren't like that don't have long careers either. You know, you get guys that have that reputation that everybody wants them on their team. Uh, and especially a winner, somebody who has that reputation and is a winner will always have a job until they just can't run the court anymore. No question. No question. And they deserve it. Those guys deserve it. You know, like I said, they can play when the lights are the bright. Good teammates. That's what it takes. That's a big part of what it takes in the NBA. Yep. Can you talk about the reaction of the team when the coaching change was made? Um, it's not easy when that happens. You know, it's really, really not. Um, can you talk about the demeanor of the team? What, what was it like behind the scenes again when David Platt was removed for Tyron Luke? It, it was a. I think it was a little surprising when it took place, purely because of the team's record at the time, which was an excellent one. But, you know, the communication opened up. I, I mentioned this before. It, it was it was different in terms of the, the way that coaches communicated with players, players communicated with each other. And I think the overall effect of it mostly was accountability. And, and I think part of that was Teron Liu having a relationship with these guys. You, you know how it is in the NBA. Typically, the assistant coaches can be the conduits at times between either the head coach and the players or even the front office and the players. So nearly everybody had a terrific relationship with Teron Lou, who had been there before, who had played in the big games. He then steps into that head chair. And that I don't think that communication changed. I think it remained the same. Assistant coach Teron, who could call out players, did the same thing as a head coach. And, and I think, again, the results are, you know, they speak for themselves because this team uh, certainly – picked up, you know, once Teron was there, 
picked up in terms of that communication uh, and ultimately did what they needed to do. So let's break it down a little bit here. In the first round of the playoffs, the Cleveland Cavaliers made very short work. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. Uh, uh, very short work. I believe that was the Detroit Pistons. I'm just double. I want to. I want to make sure I give you the, the correct. Okay, yeah. So the Cavs defeated the Pistons in four straight games. Was there any concern going in against the Detroit Pistons in the first round? Like, from from, from you you being courtside for the games, watching the games, what do you remember about that first round series? I remember that that was a closer series than it seemed. If you check the scores in that series, there were some close games. You know, I don't think the Cavs going into that series thought we might get hung up on this particular team. Uh, and, and as was always the case, they wanted to get the series done with as quickly as possible because they had older players. They wanted to rest up for the next series. So I, I think while that series was closer, you know, in terms of the games than some might remember, uh, you know, it was one that I think the Cavs thought they were going to be able to take care of handily. Uh, and that's, that is eventually what they did. And then in round two. Those were. Most of those games were. In fact, the last game was a two-point. <laughs> yeah, Detroit gave them. They, handle they, it for a four-game sweep. They had to work. Well, you know, uh, John, I don't know if you knew this, but the Cavs at that point became the fifth team since the first round was extended to the best of seven and two in 03 to go 8-0 through the first two rounds. I don't know if you knew that. It's a fun little fun little tricklet at that time. But and and keep in mind, I was around working with the Nets when they did it back in 03, when they, you know, when they took out the um the Celtics and then the, the Pistons in the conference finals. What I guess the, the, the general thinking was at that point in time, because you guys beat Atlanta, you guys beat Detroit, and now you're playing Toronto. And Toronto had a hell of a season that year. Was it? This is the mission, and this is what we've got to accomplish to get back to what to get to the goal that we need to get to. Or was it more of like the we're looking? Because I I don't think Bill, you know, this will be a good question for Bill from our perspective because you're in the trenches with the team. We're media people. I I had a hard time even taking Toronto seriously as a threat at that point. Well, yeah, I did because you basically had Demar Derozan, who is a good but not great player and has been that throughout his career now. Uh, Kyle Lowry, who was not yet, you know, Kyle became an incredible, he is an incredible player in Toronto, but at that time wasn't incredible yet. And so when you looked at their roster and then you looked at the Cavaliers roster, you thought this is over. Let's go ahead and schedule the finals from my, from, well, the, from my perspective. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. I, I checked my notes. Now it was a sweep of the Pistons in the first round, sweep of the Hawks in the second round, Toronto in six, and then Golden State. In seven, I'll get back to talk about Atlanta in a moment. But that, that Toronto series loomed a little bigger than you might think, guys. And 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 Toronto in Toronto was tough. You said it, Bill. At the time, Lowry had been maligned for not being able to step up in big spots. Since then, we've seen differently out of Kyle. I mean, you know, obviously experience over the next handful of seasons. Uh, but that was a team the Cavs the Cavs looked at as being dangerous. And the Raptors took it to the Cavs a, a couple of times in that series. Like I said, it went six. Dwayne Casey had those guys playing hard. 
playing well. You know, what I remember about that is that Toronto's bench had played such a huge part of what they did during the regular season. It was critical uh, to what Dwayne and that coaching staff was doing. And the Cavs, you know, Dwayne, the first couple of games, the Cavs were able to take advantage of that bench. Then Dwayne began to shorten the bench. And in terms of the way their rotation went, it seemed like they were almost thrown off later in that series. But earlier in that series, they were giving the Cavs everything they could handle. And trust me when I tell you, the Cavs did not take that series lightly, particularly going into Toronto, where at the then Air Canada Center, that was a wild place in which to play. And you, you mentioned before about the Atlanta series. What did you want to bring up about the Atlanta series? The Atlanta series was interesting. Remember, guys, that was a team that had won 60 games. I mean, they had four All-Stars in their starting lineup. They, You know, Millsap, Corver, Teague, and Horford. Were, that was four of their starting five. You know, and Damari Carroll was, was their fifth player. That was another series that, you know, while I told you the Cavs thought they had the the secret sauce to beat the Hawks, which they eventually, which they did, uh, as they proved that they beat them, you know, they, they swept them out of the playoffs twice. That was a heck of a team, uh, you know, and, you know, the Cavs, again, for, you know, not taking a team lightly, for a team that did advance to the finals four consecutive times to get through the Eastern Conference, that was a series that they looked at that they figured it was going to be a battle. But when you look at how those games played out, you know, Mike Budenholzer, again, decided and, and he didn't really change it up too much he said we're going to stop lebron we're going to stop penetration and the Cavs shot threes all series long and they nailed threes all series long they, they you know time and time again they blistered the hawks with the three-point shot you know again like bootnoser was picking his poison decided to stay put let the Cavs shoot threes hope that they missed and they never did and they swept the hawks out of the playoffs two seasons in a row you said it right. I mean, in that situation, if you're Mike Bootenholzer, I don't think you second get. If even now, you would say the best thing you can do is try to stop LeBron, and because what's the higher percentage? LeBron taking a shot in the paint, or any of those guys shooting a three? There's not too many coaches in the league that wouldn't take that trade off. <laughs> the ultimate quandary, right? I mean, that's the situation that LeBron puts you in. He still puts you in today, right? What do you guys? He has a different partner. Is Anthony Davis could do different things, but he still puts you in that exact predicament today at this age with his ability to pass the basketball and his IQ, knowing where to hit the open man, knowing how to manipulate defenses. It's all part of what makes him what LeBron James is, and it's what coaches have, you know, it's what kept him up, you know, sleepless nights time and time again now for decades had to deal with the LeBron problem when he has the ball in his hands. Well, LeBron went to Houston after they lost to Dallas in 2011 and, and had a, a private camp with Olajuwon and said, look, I don't, I don't understand. I'm the best player, but I can't win a championship. And Akeem told him, look, it's very simple. You're not, you're not taking the game seriously enough. You're blowing powder on everybody. You're spending too much time pulling up from mid-range where you're not forcing the defense to make a choice about you. You should know what he said. No one in this league can stop you from getting to the rim. You should never stop at mid-range. You go to the rim, you either score or you kick it out. And if you, that's a, you know, how many players have rings because of Keem? Matt Bullard, Pete Chilcutt, Vernon Maxwell, Kenny Smith. These guys don't have rings if they weren't playing with Akeem because he did the same thing. You had no choice. Everybody had to get sucked in. And then he was also just an incredible passer out of the post. It's, I, I love watching that kind of basketball. I just love it. 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's how, how do you defend it? You know, it's it's the big question, and we saw it time and time again. It's funny too, Bill, that that Cavs fans, but particularly when the Cavs played the Warriors, right? I mean, that was one of the most high, the, the highest octane offense that maybe this game has ever seen. Yeah, up and down the court, they, you know, if you score one twenty, the Warriors said, "Fantastic! You want to score one twenty? Wonderful! We'll score one forty-five, and they play that way. <laughs> kill you. They kill you every time. You think you're good enough to score one twenty? Okay, we'll score. You know, twenty points more." The, the kind of basketball the Cavs had to play to win at times was criticized. At times was called boring. You know, LeBron would put the ball in his hands and dribble it for 16 seconds before anything happened. And But it was all part of the plan. And, yes, at times it was – when it would result in a 20-footer that was way off the mark, people would go crazy and I don't believe they're playing this way and how can you beat the Warriors like this? Game 7, final score 2016 was 93-89. And it'll tell you all you need to know about how they had to play the Warriors and, and you know, how that, how that series had to be sculpted in order for the Cavaliers to win it. And, and not only that, we also forget that the, the Warriors were 73 and 19 yeah. going into Nine. that Nine, finals. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's some, just something that, that everyone has to think about. So let's, let's go to the finals. Let's, let's talk about it. This is, uh, I, I was doing a little bit more research. Um, man, I almost forgot that the first two games of this series were absolute blowouts. And I, the, the one thing that I remember was during the fourth quarter, when the game was well out of hand, Richard Jefferson was in the game and he's making backdoor cuts. He's going to the basket. And my first thought was, you know, besides the Andrew Bogut conversation we were having before, they're not, the Warriors were not very deep inside the paint. So if you go to the basket against them, it's it's going to be hit or miss, you know, and Richard was one of those guys who, who ended up when Kevin Love missed a game later in the finals, who stepped in and really had an impact. But that was one of the things that really, really caught my eye. And the first two games were not really competitive. What was the, the change of philosophy going back to Cleveland? I don't know if there was a change in philosophy. I just think that at that point, desperation set in, getting blown out two times in the other team's gym. You're coming home, and this is it. This is do or die. You lose game three, it's over. Um, and they won. You know, they took care of business in game three. I'll tell you what was the most – I'll tell you what was the turning point to me, Randy, is they lost game four, which was a winnable uh, – a very winnable game four. Okay? Mm-hmm. They in the fourth quarter – when they got on the plane going back to Golden State, you, you mentioned some of the numbers. I think some, it was something like in the regular season and the postseason combined, Golden State had only lost either once or twice all season at Oracle. I want to say once. And the Cavs had to go in there and win two, win one in game five and win one in game seven. Yet on that plane, there was a, a, a an authentic belief among the players and the coaches talking to each other that we know what we did wrong in game four but we're okay. We're going to be fine. We can go get this done. And it wasn't raw, raw stuff. You, I mean, you guys have been around the game enough to know when it's authentic, when it's not, it wasn't raw, raw stuff. It was, we really think we have this figured out and we let, yes, did we let a golden opportunity slip by in game four? We did, but we feel that we can, we have what it takes to do it. And it was, it was odd. I'd, I'd never been around a feel like that, particularly in on the heels of, a game that just felt so devastating at the end of game four that that could, that could be curtains for the Cavs. 
that plane ride out was really something else. And sure enough, they got it done in game five and came home, took care of business again in game six and went out and, and got game seven as well. One thing that's interesting, Randy, you mentioned the lack of depth for the uh, Warriors in the middle. They were starting Andrew Bogut and uh, former Cavalier Anderson Berge. I was sort of, if you want to say he was the backup uh, in position only, but they, the Warriors were at their best when they took Bogut out and brought in Iguodala and the smaller lineup, and they just swarmed. And I think it it kind of reminds me of the way the Golden State Warriors played the Mavs the year that the Mavs were the top seed and the Warriors were the eighth seed, and they came in and just small-balled them to death and used the inability of the other team to match up, even though Dallas had an advantage with the big guys in the middle, you know, Dirk. But they were able to take an advantage and turn it into a disadvantage. And I think that's where you see that that coaching, you know, recognition that, hey, we can't beat them in the middle, so let's not try. Let's do our thing and be really good at our thing and force them to stop us. And I think that's, from a coaching standpoint, it's tough to trust that, I think. Well, and that's part of what I was alluding to earlier in our chat is that it turned into a series where, all right, we're not going to go with big guys. We're going to play this thing, you know, swarming, as you put it, Bill. And that, to me, the two things that are – that are the most underrated about those Warriors teams. One was their defense. Everybody sees the highlights. Everybody sees how this team, in a way, revolutionized basketball with the three-point shot and everything else that they were doing offensively. But there was a time where, you know, going into the playoffs, during the regular season, the Warriors not only were number one in field goal percentage, they were number one in opponent's field goal percentage during the regular season. And people yeah. forget just how good they were and, and swarming, to use your words, on that defensive end of the floor. The second was players like Iguodala coming off the bench. Earlier, it was players like Barbosa and Lee, Sean Livingston throughout those four, you know, finals matchups between these teams. The Cavs would do everything they could to deal with Curry and Thompson and Durant and Draymond. And then they'd go take a break and in come heady veterans, all of whom know how to play the game, high IQs, here comes Livingston. He knows what he knows what he's doing. Iguodala's a pain in the neck. You know, they just come in waves, and there was you couldn't. There was no time to take a breather. You had to play for 48 minutes, and that's why you want to go up against the Warriors in a seven-game series. You better be ready to go because they're coming right from the opening tip, and they're not going to stop until the series is over. Uh, and that's how it was each and every time during those four final series. Gotta ask about the atmosphere. Uh, game seven, plane ride, everything about it. Talk. You, you were you were uh, with the team. You were you were around it. You know what was it like? Something that I think Bill and I will never fully really understand. And, um, that feeling. What was that like? Well, I'll start here <laughs> with about three and a half minutes left. That game was tied at eighty nine. And that game remained tied until 53 seconds left. And that felt like 45 minutes, guys. That was the longest stretch of scoreless basketball it felt like ever. It was just missed shots and turnovers. It was like the scene in Rocky II where Apollo and Rocky are just hammering each other with roundhouses. And nobody's going down. And the other one hammers each other. Just back and forth. And nobody could score. LeBron gets the block. And... Everything else takes place during that time until Kyrie hit the three-pointer to put the Cavs up for good with 53 seconds remaining in game seven. 
And still, and even though the Cavs had a two-possession lead and ended up winning that game by four, at no time did I take a deep breath and think, the Cavs got him. At no time until maybe two seconds left, then finally everything just overwhelms. You know, it was that tight. And and then, you know, from a broadcaster's perspective, you just you just go. You think you know what you're going to say, but at that point, man, everything just comes spilling out and you you pray it sounds good. You don't know what happened. You don't know what you said. You you pray that when you listen back later, it it ended up to be something you like. But, you know, you go from you go from that happening to go into the locker room with the champagne and everything else. And you can only imagine. I mean, a kid who grew up liking sports, just like you guys, being in anybody's locker room, let alone the team that you're covering when they win a, when they win a championship, let alone a game seven, let alone the first one in over 50 years, you know, in the city of Cleveland. Uh, and to see the, the authentic look on the players' faces in knowing that what they did was so much bigger than than them, you know, than just the joy of the moment. It was so much bigger for so many people and so many generations of Cleveland sports fans that hadn't experienced anything like that. And it was, it was touching to a lot of people and emotional, as you might imagine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something you'll never forget. And that sting of the, that's that sting of the champagne's real guys. That doesn't wash off for about a week. Out of your- <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, but it's all worth it. Uh, then, you know, you end up with the parade and the float with 2 million of your closest friends in downtown Cleveland a couple of days later. Uh, you know, it's, as you might imagine, just something special and something you never forget. So what you're saying is when you're doing that call right at the end of the game with two seconds left, thank God there's a seven second delay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, no, I don't get you're those like, seven Holy seconds. <laughs> yeah, well, all, all right. Yeah. No, you know what I kept, you know, what the mantra I kept repeating to myself was keep your composure so your listeners can lose theirs. I kept saying it over and over. Keep your composure so your listeners can lose theirs because you want to go, oh, my God. You know, you want to lose your mind. But on radio, you're the eyes, you're the ears. You can't do it. On television, you might be able to get away with it because everybody sees what's happening. But you are it. For the people who happen to be stuck in their cars at that time, for the people listening on radio, it's you. So you better get it right. You better stay (laughs) as lucid as you can (laughs) throughout the entire experience to try to try to convey it as as accurately and as fun as you can. So you didn't do the Bob Euchre from Cleveland, like the Cleveland, like from the from Major League. You just do the whole thing. We're like, like <laughs> did the whole thing. Oh my was, God, the oh Indian <laughs> <laughs> and I literally had this mental picture of like LeBron p- punching J.R. Smith and picking him up and hugging him. <laughs> You're just going to reenact the whole movie on the court. It'd be great. <laughs> um, I, I think that's it for me, Bill. If you want to add anything else, please. I think he might have froze again. <laughs> it's okay. At least we've, you know, John. Smile. At least he's happy, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's so happy right there. He's so loved in that conversation. Um, you know, you know, John, I think I'll close it up with you know, uh, you know, if you can give your favorite memory, obviously from that time, he's obviously the championship, but from the parade and being involved in that that time frame, you know, obviously now the team is on tougher times. Um, I almost felt like after that last. Um, that last finals run where you guys got swept by the Warriors where there was no Kyrie and, you know, the team made some adjustments with bringing in Larry Nance Jr. and and George Hill. 
that team was going to be scrappy to make it to where they, where they, where they made it back to the finals. So now the team's in a tougher spot than it was when LeBron was there. What are you looking back at that? Not just 2016, but the time frame that LeBron came back. What What are your fondest memories of it? Well, you mentioned the parade, and again, you're going to talk about joy. Just to see the joy. I mean, there were reportedly anywhere from 1.2 to 2 million people in the streets of Cleveland, and, and to see people from all walks of life, all ages. You know, the the collective joy on everybody's face was was unimaginable and i always said you know people talk about all oh, the ring you know what are you going to do with the ring and i said you can keep the ring i had a new my son was a newborn at the time my daughter was two i said you put me on a float with my newborn and my two-year-old and my wife riding down the streets of cleveland with all of our friends there celebrating this win and and that's all i need i don't need any championship ring and and it was it was special it was you know again you would talk about memories that's that's one of them you know uh, just seeing the, the the excitement and seeing it almost a, a weight lifted off the shoulders after 52 years of struggles um, is something I'll never forget. You know, and you fast forward till now, when, when I think back to those four years, my first thought is, thank goodness they got one. Yeah. You know, because you think about teams that this, the cycle in the NBA can be a long, arduous cycle, you know, to get back to where you even to the playoffs, right? To get back where you're playing meaningful basketball, to get back where you're a legit threat to win the NBA championship. It is not easy. It's more wide open now, by the way, Randy, I think than maybe at any other time over the last 20, 30 years. It used to be maybe three teams could win it, you know, at the start of the season, and that was it. Uh, it's it, To me, it's a little more wide open now, but the still is such a difficult one that I think, thank goodness they got a title, you know, because for teams that get there and don't win one. And, you know, even those Hawks teams that we talked about, those Raptors teams, if the Raptors wouldn't have won with Kawhi, they would have gotten close to the pinnacle, gotten wiped out. You, know, you think of Indiana got close a couple times, and, they're you know, you're back to square one. And, and New Jersey, look. Uh, you know, look perfect, at, perfect example. Yeah, New Jersey, look, I, I, you know, John, I don't know how familiar you were with what was going on with the Nets at that time. Yeah. But the, the Nets had that core. You know, they yes, they lost the second round against Detroit in a brutal seven-game series when, when the Pistons beat the Lakers. But that Nets team, Jason Kidd, played that that playoff run against the Knicks and the Pistons on one leg. You know, so, like, to me, being around that franchise, saying myself, for two NBA finals, the Lakers, they just didn't know how to win. They had bad coaching against the Spurs when when you're up 11 and the two guys that help build your leader on the bench in the fourth quarter. That's just terrible coaching. But like, you know, like you said, if LeBron would have came back to Cleveland and did not win in 2016, there was no doubt in my mind that 2017, 2018, he would have been looking for a new home. I, 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 I there's just there's that my inner feeling. We'll never know because he got one. I got one, and I know you got to. I got to run too, just like just like we do. But um, you know, Bill's Bill's still, I guess, dealing with his computer issues. But I, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, your continued patience with us, and, and a lot of and and you know, let's definitely have you on again. You know, I think it's. Uh, I, I always think it's always fun to have you, and for the fact that you like doing jokes with, with Major League the movie, just like I do, I think it's great. Well, I certainly appreciate it, Randy. It's always fun with you and Bill. Anytime, you know where to find me, and uh, I'd love to come on again.
Thank you. Well, w- once we're post pandemic and we can actually travel and everything else like that, may, you know, I'll, I'll talk to Alyssa about coming, coming down and what, you know, the dinner will be on the dinner will definitely be on me the first time the drinks will be on you, but the dinner will be on me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which one's going to be more costly. We'll see how it works. Out. No, I, hey, that's a great plan. That sounds terrific. All right, John, thanks so much for your time as always. And uh, th- th- you, have, you always have an open invitation to come into the huddle. All right, so that was John Michaels, the voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Had a great time talking with him and loving his reaction to the Cavs winning the championship when he said that it, like no one really believed it until the buzzer rang. And then nobody – and then no, it's so simple. I kept wanting to wipe that powder off his shoulders, you know. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you say that, and I'm going to tell you one – Quick story. Uh, when I used to do stats with the New Jersey Nets, I used to sit courtside, and like again, I'm right at press row, and where all that powder is, and the Nets are playing the Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves with Kevin Garnett, and the Minnesota announcers never told me that Kevin does a thing where he puts the rod, they put the rosin on the thing, he takes it, goes like this, and then takes the rosin and throws it forward. The announcer guys always put this thing up, but they never told me, and it went all over me to the point where right after the right after the game, Kevin Garnett actually found me and apologized for throwing the Bronson on me, and the announcers never told us anything about it. So I just figured you'd enjoy that story. So, uh, but as far as the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers, Bill, I'll give you your final thoughts. Well, I just think, you know, when you see um, a player grow like that, I didn't have a whole lot of use for LeBron during early in his career. Um, the few, the number of times that I spoke to him, I was not impressed, kind of walked away going, I don't, this guy just doesn't get it. Um, a lot of young players don't, but to see him grow, to see the per- the player who emerged from Miami uh, LeBron ready to take on being the guy because he went there so he could play with the guy and Dwayne Wade was the guy. But for him to um, emerge from Miami as a player ready to become that stuff, all the hype, uh, I, I, I thought that was good. Even again, not a fan of his, but someone who I now appreciate the journey that he's made to get from where he was to where he is. Uh, I thought, you know, hey, that was that was worth the price of of the of admission or the price of watching it on TV. <laughs> I, I my final takeaway was seeing a guy who was passionate about trying to make it work for Cleveland because when he left to go to Miami, he was like public enemy number one, and was never be welcomed back. They would welcome back. Um, Oh man, I was gonna be, I was gonna use an analogy, but it's just probably better that I don't use that analogy whatsoever. That's for it. I'll use it. And if Andrew feels it's too inventive, he can edit out. Uh, he's just welcome. Um, like Hitler is into Germany at that point. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I hope that's the right analogy. Um, you know, this, I don't know. You might be canceled now. <laughs> <laughs> and we now welcome back you to the cooking podcast. Um, <laughs> With that, with that being, you know, but all joking aside, you know, I, I think that um, 
you know, LeBron made, you know, he didn't hate Cleveland. He just wanted to, you know, he's desperate to win. If you think about LeBron pre-Miami, you saw an immature kid who thought that, you know, he was getting screwed by everybody. And then with, it took him. Like it was yeah. high school and college. Yeah. He wanted things handed to him. And he went out and earned uh, once his once San Antonio eliminated the Heat in that last NBA Finals that he was in Miami. He felt he needed a change. He saw the writing in the wall, Miami, that he was going to have to be the guy. Yep. And he said, "You know what? I think it's time to go somewhere else." And he says, "Well, I don't want to go back to Cleveland." And everyone's sitting there saying, "Why would Dan Gilbert bring him back after that seething letter?" The two of them sat down, talked, and and they were able to work it out. And you know. He had an unbelievable run back when he came back to Cleveland. And it might be the best run in sports history. And if you look at what the Cavaliers are right now, no one can ever doubt that. You know, I think one thing people don't understand, uh, even players, maybe some, is that you, to get to the NBA, you had to be the best player in your state. Being the best player in your state you know, LeBron, hands down the best high school athlete, could have gone to any college in the country, full ride, no questions asked. Then you get to the NBA, and you're only playing against other players who were also the best players in their state. And so you've got guys sitting at the very end of the bench who are so much better than anybody in college basketball. I mean – hands down, and they can't even get minutes in the NBA. Uh, and I think that's something that it's a it's something that when a rookie is coming into the NBA, that has to be the biggest challenge is all of a sudden you're going up against guys who are never played against very many guys who are as good as you. These guys are all better, you know, and I think that's LeBron who had it as easy as he did through coming up through and then through high school. I, that probably was something he had to had to get pounded into him a little bit. I, yeah, I think it was a very, very, very good wake up call. And you know what? Uh, for his sake and for for everything that he went through, uh, I'm, I was happy for him and happy for the city of Cleveland that broke that long uh, that long streak. Now, um, so we put, we put a bow on this episode. Our future episodes coming up. I'm not exactly sure which one is the next one. We have, we do have the Detroit Pistons 2004 season. I'm not saying that because, like, like, oh my god, we don't even know what our next episode is. We we are tackling a bunch of different topics, so we haven't decided which one's going to go on next. So the the, 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 the 2004 Detroit Pistons is coming up. We have Shaq versus Kobe coming up. We have the Allen Iverson trade to Denver coming up. We have. Um, we have quite a few things coming, and we also might throw some bonus episodes here and there. So uh, with that being said, Bill, I'm so glad to, to uh, see you back here, um, you know, and then we'll uh, we'll be back and keep coming to BackSportsPage.com. Bill, where can they find you? Well, on Twitter, I'm, as it says right there, at, at the Rocket Guy. That's where I am on Twitter. Uh, of course, if I write about the NBA, it will be at BackSportsPage.com. <laughs> and my personal uh, blog is ishmaelslegacy.com, which I don't ever write about the NBA there, but all kinds of other stuff. So that's where you can find me. And for me, listen, I, I've come to the conclusion that uh, I'm everywhere. 
uh, BackSportsPage.com, Randy BSP on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm hosting four podcasts. I'm, you know, I do weddings and bar mitzvahs. I've come to that conclusion. <laughs> I'm everywhere. So uh, just keep going to BackSportsPage.com for more information. And uh, the, this show might be expanding out a little bit more also into a written style. But Bill and I will tell you that when it goes official. So we'll get there. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next time here on The Hardwood Hub. 